Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Commerce Trust, our podcast where we share insights on economic and investment topics that matter to you. I'm your host, David Hagee, Chief Investment Officer of Commerce Trust. Today, we're going to discuss the concept of globalization, or how the world economy is reshaping the way we conduct business and trade, with Scott Colbert, our Chief Economist and Director of Fixed Income Management here at Commerce Trust. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Oh, David, nice to see you. You know, this has been a topic that uh, I've been thinking about for quite some time, so happy to kick off our podcast series uh, with globalization. But maybe it'd be helpful to walk through the trend that preceded globalization, globalization. This is the process that we saw global trade increase fairly dramatically uh, up to about up to a peak in uh, 2008, about 39 percent of global GDP was trade. Uh, at that point, uh, you saw an inflection point, but maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, uh, the trend of globalization that started things off. Where are your thoughts on on where things started? Well, of course, global trade's been increasing ever since probably the first two cities started to trade with each other, you know, thousands of years ago. But technology clearly advanced it. You know, one of the biggest changes in technology was the advent of the cargo container ship, the deeper ports. Those uh, those little cargo container vessels that you see on the backs of rail cars, you know, really help speed up um, global trade. Um, you know, collectively, global trade as a percent of GDP in 1970 was about 25 percent, meaning the average country imported and exported about 12 and a half percent of its goods and services. By 1980, it was 34 percent. By 2000, it was 45 percent, and then amazingly, you know, it had jumped almost almost 60 percent prior to the subprime crisis. It's fallen now, though, post the subprime crisis for basically 15 consecutive years, rather slowly and then a little bit with a, with a, with a, with a big bump down during the pandemic and then most recently with the, the, the invasion of uh, Russia into Ukraine. But now global trade represents only 52% of GDP, which means that the average country imports 26% of its goods and services and exports 26% of its goods and services. And for me, as I think about globalization, certainly you saw the building blocks in place. But at the end of the Cold War, you saw a opportunity for countries to become uh, more dynamic. You certainly saw in Asia, China begin to open up to capitalism throughout the 90s. Uh, The Asian tigers emerge of Korea, Malaysia and Indonesia um, in that time period. And and maybe the crowning moment of globalization was uh, China's ascension into the World Trade Organization uh, in 2001. You know, w- what it meant for U.S. manufacturing on the other side was was quite a, quite a difference. So uh, 16% of U.S. GDP was uh, manufacturing-based in 1997, uh, dipped down to 11.5% of U.S. GDP by 2009 was, was in manufacturing. You know, that translated directly into jobs and and uh, what we saw is uh, 17 and a half million Americans employed in manufacturing in 1990, declining down to 11 million Americans employed in manufacturing by 2008. So a pretty strong drop and, and you know, maybe leading to, uh, to some of the uh, emergence of populism that we've seen today as, as people were left out in the cold uh, from a jobs perspective. You know, there was a massive peace dividend in aggregate, and basically that's what you've referred to here and the opening of China. But of course, certain people benefited and certain people did not benefit. Um, I'm a product of Ohio and the the Rust Belt, 
And I was 18 in 1979 when basically, you know, manufacturing peaked in this country. And we've watched that slow hollowing out. We hit the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009. That seems to represent a turning point from globalization to the globalization idea. Fundamentally, looking at this, uh, I know we've talked about energy in the past, uh, about being part of that transition point. Uh, we've also talked about uh, this idea of intellectual capital that has slowly leaked out of this country and is being recaptured on energy. I mean, what's what's been the driver there? In dollar terms, and we've phrased this this GDP or this globalization or deglobalization in dollar terms. Two things have driven some of it, though, that that largely go unnoticed. Um, number one was our ability to import less and less oil in general. You know, transportation fuel import or oil from the Middle East essentially accounted for half of our trade deficit. And as we become much more energy independent, basically because we invented the fracking technology and have uh, now, you know one of the three top you know energy producers in the world with Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia being the other two, we've had to import less dollars of oil. Um, so that has that has helped reduce um, our trade deficit and it has reduced a little bit of the um, trade in energy in general. And then secondly, the rise of the dollar, this has largely gone unnoticed, um, but you know from pre-subprime crisis, when basically the dollar bottomed against international currencies, Till today, over the last 15 years, on a currency-weighted basis, the dollar has appreciated about 35%. And then probably more importantly, with regards to what we're talking about today, on a trade-weighted basis with our trading partners, the dollar has increased 44%. And of course, energy trades in dollars, so those countries have had to pick up the brunt of that, but largely the United States has benefited. It probably also has rolled into, you know, somewhat indirectly, or at least when you when you talk about corporate earnings the lower margins of international companies and emerging market companies in terms of dollars and the increasing margins of the United States, you know, technologically driven companies and, and, and basically created kind of a, a return differential that's accrued to the United States relative to the rest of the world. You know, the other piece to this is that as we saw world uh, trade wars start to increase around 2016 and as people become more acutely aware of of their trading position, and you couple that with the pandemic, we've seen this emergence of regional trading blocks. And part of the regional trading blocks, I believe, are born out of the logistical issues we had in the pandemic. You know, you had this big spaghetti bowl of logistics that just didn't unwind properly. And you, you saw the frailty or the, the fragility of our supply chains here, that all it takes is one supplier missing a part and you can't get the finished product out. So, you know, that, that's had some outcomes here as we talk about friendshoring, which I, I'm going to give you credit for. That's that's a term we've talked about, where these regional trading blocks operate as a mini economy, where you have low-cost providers, say Mexico and North America, that will handle a lot of assembly, a lot of uh, manufacturing, and then you'll have uh, you know higher-cost providers be more focused on service and whatever natural resources. So think Canada in, in that perspective. Any other outcomes from the uh, pandemic that you're thinking about in terms of this globalization? Well, certainly the, 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 the two key things that came about because of the pandemic, and then secondly, because of the, the Russian invasion in Ukraine, is the fragility, as you said, of those supply lines. You can't just have a simple supply line. And I think most companies now are recognizing that 
And what they need is a really a supply web. They need redundancies of those nodes that can basically, you know, get get stalled. Secondly, we don't talk much about it, but you know, the, the big focus, generally driven by the Japanese companies decades ago on just-in-time inventory and efficiencies, the lack of cushion. Uh, sometimes I think it's almost every new car no longer has a real spare tire, right? At best, they have a, um, a tiny little uh, tire. Yeah. Some, some cars don't even have a spare tire at all to lower the price. And, uh, and in, in essence, I think that's what basically the supply lines and the just-in-time, you've recognized that you've cut out too much uh, of, a, of a cushion and you need to build that back in. Unfortunately, that is temporarily inflationary as General Motors doesn't ask for just one manufacturer to make one screw, but now they need three manufacturers to make that part for them to, you know, add the redundancies. Um, so, you know, the near-term impact of a lot of this is inflationary. Hopefully that part of it can become relatively uh, transitory, but in the near term, you know, it's kind of lowered the standard of living for almost everybody and raised, you know, the inflation rates. You know, as that transitions to other investment thoughts around this idea of globalization, we can talk a little bit about domestic markets versus emerging and international markets and certainly some impacts from a very high level there. And then also, you know, some industries that this could potentially impact uh, around domestic versus, say, international and maybe more specifically emerging markets. What do these impacts look like? If you combine the entire international market, it's only up about three and a half percent versus twelve and a half percent here. They've underperformed by 9% per year for a decade. And you might think that, boy, with all this underperformance, wouldn't there be some great opportunities to invest internationally? But you know, being our chief investment officer better than anybody, what do you see from an international perspective going forward that you know might, might be changing? Yeah, what we've seen is that as you have the veil of globalization lift, there's a lack of catalysts inside the international markets that gives us some pause in, in going deeper into international markets at this moment. But at, at some point, uh, to your to your point, you're going to see the valuation of international companies be so low that it's just uh, a screaming buy. I'm not sure we're there at, that, at, the, at this point yet. And certainly with U.S. interest <coughs> rates significantly higher uh, than the rest of the world, you're going to see dollar dominance continue, which just makes it harder for, say, uh, a European tech company to compete with an American tech company in terms of pricing in the U.S. market. So the, the, the two key catalysts, from my perspective, that will help us focus on international investing and perhaps adding back to it are, you mentioned, you know, the dollar and the interest rate differential clearly is helping drive the dollar. But we're starting to see now probably a likely slowdown in our interest rate hiking process while they continue to accelerate it over in Europe. Short-term rates in Europe are still one and a half percent, where ours are going to be four percent. Secondly, is likely to be some type of resolution, and there won't be any winning the war in Ukraine, but at least a resolution that ends that conflict that would help you know Europe get back to a, a much more normalized um, basis. Those two key things for me are the catalyst to look overseas versus looking domestically near term. Scott, thanks for the great discussion today. Uh, for more information about globalization, you can download our market perspectives at www.commercetrustcompany.com. Thank you for joining us on Conversations with Commerce Trust. I'm David Hagee. We'll talk again soon. 
Important material disclosures regarding the content of this program follow. Commerce Trust is a division of Commerce Bank. Generally, non-depository investments offered in connection with Commerce Trust and its affiliates are not guaranteed, are not FDIC insured, and may lose value. Opinions and other information provided are effective as of the date of the recording and presented for the purpose of general education, information, or illustration only. Neither Commerce nor any of its affiliates, officers, employees, or agents have made any recommendations to buy, hold, or sell securities or given any advice as to the terms, beneficial interests, or profitability of any investment strategy or market activity and information provided may not be relied upon as such. You, as the investor, are fully responsible for any investment transaction you choose to enter into, including determining whether such investment is appropriate in light of your investment objectives and personal circumstance, and you shall not have relied on any of the preceding or following information from Commerce as the basis for any investment decision. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified attorney, tax advisor, or investment professional. In considering whether to trade or invest, you should inform yourself and be aware of the risks. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and the information in the commentary provided is subject to change based on market or other conditions. Diversification does not guarantee a profit or protect against all risk. Commerce Trust does not offer tax, legal, or specific estate planning advice. And while we may provide information or express general opinions from time to time, such information or opinions are not offered as professional tax or legal advice. Commerce Trust does not provide advice relating to rolling over retirement accounts. Commerce is not a municipal advisor under Section 15B of the Securities Exchange Act and therefore does not offer advice or recommendations concerning bond proceeds or other municipal advice subject to this section. Any data contained herein from third-party providers is obtained from what are considered reliable sources. However, its accuracy, completeness, or reliability cannot be guaranteed.